YouTube, long time no see. Well, that is, if you're one of the few people, or actually a shocking number of people, who think that because I haven't been uploading to YouTube, I, I just haven't been making content. When uh, in actuality, uh, for the last several weeks, I've been putting out at least nine hours a week of content on the Insomnia stream that is live on Trovo, and then it gets posted to BitChute and Odyssey, but not YouTube. Not YouTube. Why? Because YouTube is for fat. That's right. It's for massive fat that like to have dicks in their mouths and in their while they and everything in sight because they're giant massive that just all they think about is tree and getting fucked in the ass constantly while off to inside but there are other platforms out there believe it or not and they're not that difficult to find uh i would follow me on telegram that's a good start and uh you can follow me on gab as well it's another alternative platform and soon I'll be having my own uh, Discord-like community servers set up for people that uh, want to help each other out in terms of homesteading, uh, maybe even stuff like ham radio, talk about propaganda, whatever. All kinds of cool stuff. We're also going to be working on a Day of the Movie, a crowdsourced movie where your participation is not just encouraged, it's required. So why don't you head over to Trovo? The link is going to be in the description. Make sure you sub over at Trovo. Make sure you sub over at BitChute. And make sure you sub over at Odyssey. All these links will be in the description. I'm just, it's just not worth it to me to upload to a giant f machine like uh, YouTube that's built like specifically for f that's built specifically for uh, massive f that and i so i just don't it's just not worth it for me it's not worth it for me to use this platform they've been uh digging up old videos and giving me strikes i mean one of the reasons why i haven't been uploading here is i can't half the time i can't this is a lucky little window when i actually get to upload and uh look they look who who are you still subscribed to that is still able to post videos on this platform like what what milk toast are you watching that's still on YouTube for fuck's sake? I, I, I don't even know. Like me, everyone that I subscribe to on this platform is gone. If I go to my subscription feed, it's just a bunch of f***s. Literal f***s. So head on over to Trovo, head on over to Odyssey, head on over to BitChute, head on over to Telegram, head on over to Gab, and f*** YouTube right in its f***. For Blackpilled, I am Devin Stack. I don't have papers for me today. Uh, we both know how well that turned out last time. I, like I told this guy, I wasn't planning on coming back, but I'm really fucking pissed. 
because I believe the Liberals have jumped the shark with what they did in Berkeley yesterday. So, this is a message to you, the neoliberals, the SJWs, the fucking blue pills. The blue pills, the Antifa, whatever you want to call yourself. This is why you lost part two. You lost because you told the poor white working families in rural Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan that despite losing their jobs, despite their factories closing down and their communities emptying out, that they were the privileged ones because of their skin color, that they benefit from white privilege. You guys are the privileged ones. You... You guys are so fucking out of touch. You're sitting in your big comfy chairs in your large office spaces up in the ivory towers of university sociology departments. And you actually think we working class people give two shits and a fuck about your identity politics. You think we care about intersectional trans feminism when... Look, I come from a working class family, all right? And the struggle doesn't discriminate our the struggle is the same our parents work their hands off to provide a better future for us so we don't have to struggle and when their jobs left that dream left with them and you actually think we care about fucking identity politics when the first thing that popped into our mind when we wake up is whether or not we're going to make rent this month whether or not we have money for food in our budget, or whether or not our bronze-tier Obamacare plan covers little Britney's weird cough. Britney is sick. So sick. We don't know what's wrong with her. It might be because we don't have enough money, and we can only afford to feed her cold chicken tendies. That's right. That's right. Check your privilege. And yet you... And yet... You guys are the real racist ones, but you've redefined the word racism to mean power, privilege, and prejudice. You've twisted the definition so that we can't use the word against you, but you can use the word against us and against anybody that disagrees with you. Because under this new definition, all white people are racist. All people that defend white people are either racist themselves or just self-hating Uncle Tom's or Uncle Chang's. You called people that disagreed with you racist, racist, sexist Nazis. You don't listen to us when we try to tell you why we believe what we believe. You've demonized us and dehuman and dehumanized us, so that it's so that in your mind it's okay to punch us. Because what's more American than punching a Nazi, right? It's easy to punch a Nazi, and when we are the Nazis, it's easy. To hang us from trees. No offense. <laughs> you have one foot over the line right now. A line that you do not want to cross. You are normalizing violence. And if you don't believe me, look at what this past year has been. Your side has, ch has chased down Trump supporters. Beat them up. You've egged a woman that just wanted to be at a Trump rally. Yesterday, you pepper sprayed a woman that was no threat to you. She was talking to a camera crew. You pepper sprayed her because she was wearing a Trump hat. You threw rocks at people that just wanted to hear Milo speak. It, 
it doesn't matter that you disagree with Milo. You do not hit and attack and smash people with rocks just because they wanted to hear what he has to say. Once you cross that line, you're starting a war that you cannot win. You think you're so big and powerful. Step out of your bubble. Step out of the liberal cities and look at the rest of the country. You're outnumbered, outmanned, and outgunned. You cannot win this if it turns violent. If you normalize violence, if violence is okay, you cannot win. You can win by reaching out to conservatives, talking to them, talk to Trump supporters and ask them why they believe what they believe. And maybe, maybe you'll find common ground. Maybe you might even convince us to adopt your position. Or maybe we all will red pickle you. Who knows? Can you put down your fist, take off your mask, fight with your words, not sticks and stones. Because if you do not change, you're going to lose. You need us on your side. You need to convince us why you're right. Because you can't kill us. You can't kill all of us. You cannot divide us. Exactly. <laughs> you need us on your side because Generation, Generation Z, the kids that are growing up and being, and being born right now, they're projected to be the most conservative generation in decades, more conservative than your grandparents. And we, we millennials, we grew up with the internet. These kids are growing up in the internet, in a fully formed medium where they can spread their ideas and beliefs. They're going to shit posts better than any of us combined. They're, they're going to harness beam magic better than any 400-pound, 30-year-old version. The future is in their hands, and they're on our side. So unless you change your ways, you've already lost. I'm, i got to go home now. That's Bye. right! Please clap. How many times have people told you that the media being owned by a select few isn't a problem? That these corporations and the bankers that fund them would never propagandize the people for their own interests? And certainly wouldn't endanger lives? That false flags aren't real? And that they would involve way too many people? That a secret that big could never be kept quiet? Media manipulation by bankers with money interests and governments beholden to those bankers is not the exception it's the rule. There are countless verified examples that government schools conveniently leave out of the history books, and banker-funded media conglomerates are the last people that are going to give you a peek behind the curtain they've woven to protect themselves from the retribution they would surely face if the public were to discover just how little their lives mattered. One of the most well-documented examples of how war profiteers operate that parallels exactly with how these war profiteers operate today is the sinking of the Lusitania, an event that would claim the lives of nearly 2,000 people, including 195 Americans, and would be the false flag to get the American public behind a war that would later claim the lives of over 100,000 Americans. A war that up until this false flag planned by the elites, including J.P. Morgan and his Rothschild backers, and the Wilson administration 
was only supported by one out of ten Americans. And the motivations are the same as they've always been. Money and power. In the early 1900s, J.P. Morgan, the American agent of the Rothschilds, sold war bonds in America to fund the English and the French in their war with Germany. Not only did they profit through handsome commissions from these bonds, the money raised was then spent at the companies owned by Morgan and the Rothschilds. War was big money. Total purchases would rise to an astronomical $3 billion, which in today's money would be roughly $74 billion. Morgan's firm became the largest purchaser on earth. And when German U-boats appeared to be turning the tide against England, they faced a very real possibility that this ocean of money would dry up. This would mean substantial losses to their balance sheets. Additionally, this would also threaten England's ability to repay the billions of dollars it had borrowed with war bonds. In fact, Morgan was finding it difficult just to sell the bonds that funded his military-industrial complex, as it appeared the Germans might claim victory in a matter of months. To make matters worse, Morgan himself had loaned around $37 billion in today's money that he was now in danger of losing. Something had to be done. Morgan hired a committee that identified the 25 most influential newspapers. He then installed editors at each of the papers and paid them off to run stories that were pro-war. Eventually, he had over a thousand newspaper editors on his payroll and used his vast advertising purchasing power to strong-arm the smaller papers to trumpet the same pro-war sentiment. The Rockefellers of Standard Oil, who would also profit handsomely from the war, used its own publishing companies to influence the people against Germany and funneled money to reluctant congressmen. Massive parades were held. But with all this campaigning and social engineering, the polling data still showed that 90% of Americans still favored staying out of the war. Enter the false flag that would plunge the world into war, killing over 100,000 Americans to protect the interests of the bankers and the ruling class. Winston Churchill, who knew all too well, without American involvement in the war, he would soon lose to Germany, began to work with President Wilson and the bankers on the false flag that would force the American people to support the war. The sinking of the Lusitania. The Lusitania, while built as a British passenger ocean liner, had been retrofitted with armor, revolving gun rings on its decks, and was classified by the British Navy as an armored auxiliary cruiser. Its lower passenger compartments had been removed to make room for the war munitions exported by America's industrial military complex. Churchill ordered the Lusitania and all ships to ignore orders from German U-boats to halt and be searched, and instead to engage the German U-boats or even rammed them without warning. He also ordered crews not to treat captured U-boat crews as prisoners of war, but to execute them. This left the German Navy with only one option, to sink ships suspected of delivering war munitions on site. The Lusitania, whose previous captain resigned over Churchill's plan to use passengers as human shields, was loaded with weapons and ammunition sold by the J.P. Morgan Company in violation of every neutrality treaty. The German embassy in Washington filed a complaint to the Wilson administration and was ignored. The Germans went so far as to attempt to run ads in American newspapers warning Americans not to board the weapon-carrying ship traveling through a war zone 
but the papers controlled by the bankers and by order of the State Department refused to run the ads. Using the media as a weapon against the people is not a new thing. The bankers and the politicians they owned were purposely sending unaware Americans right into a deadly trap. The so-called passenger liner carrying over 6 million rounds of ammunition was directed by the British Navy into an area where a German U-boat had recently fired upon two ships and was known to be active. To ensure the ship would be vulnerable, the destroyer that was supposed to escort the cargo to port was called back without notifying the Lusitania, leaving her a sitting duck in hostile waters. And on May 7th, 1915, close to 2,000 passengers, including 195 Americans, were sacrificed to the bankers as the German U-boat, U-20, fired at the hull, setting off a massive explosion when the munitions and the cargo ripped a hole so large in her starboard bow that one of the largest ships ever built sank in less than 18 minutes. The Lusitania was purposely loaded full of explosives and then led defenselessly into hostile waters in the hopes that it would be sunk by the Germans. This was the false flag that propelled America into what would become known as World War I, a war that easily could have ended before claiming the lives of over 100,000 Americans that died so that the military-industrial complex and the banking class could avoid losing money on a profitable war, a war that would later lead to another world war, that would claim the lives of millions. All this so bankers could grow fat on the blood of the people that would line up for the slaughter, war after war after war. The details of this false flag have been largely hidden from the public. In fact, as recently as 1993, the official story was that the Lusitania had exploded because of coal dust in the boiler rooms, and that it had not been carrying ammunition or explosives. The real story remained hidden from the public for nearly a hundred years, until in 2008 when divers found millions of rounds in the hull of the sunken wreckage. The media had successfully covered up a false flag for nearly a century, a fact that completely obliterates the notion that false flags involve too many people, and that surely someone would talk, and that the truth would get out. People who don't know their history are damned to repeat it. Do we have to wait another century before we get the truth of modern false flags perpetrated by the bankers and the deep state? When will the people stop confirming the ruling class's belief that we are all just cattle to be slaughtered for profit? Slaves that unknowingly prop them up and support their lifestyle of decadence and degeneracy fighting for table scraps and vying for the coveted position as alpha slave, while the ruling class looks down at us not in pity, but with amusement and disgust. The technocrats are developing new ways to control us and eventually make us obsolete. We are rapidly approaching a future in which the ruling class will have successfully replaced us with lower IQ populations that are easier to control and easier to replace with automation. We must stop them now and expose them for who they are now because we don't have another century to wait for the truth to come out. It's not just about the deaths on the Lusitania. It's not about the deaths in World War I, which led to all the deaths in World War II. World War II led to the deaths of nearly half a million American men. American men that might not have voted for the Immigration Act of 1965. Unless we forget, without World War II, there would have been no baby boom 
That decision by those bankers, the Wilson administration and Churchill, to sacrifice the lives of unwitting pawns in their war profiteering game so they could increase their profits. The effects of that evil decision have irreversibly damaged this nation in every measurable way. And look at the British now, arresting people for thought crimes. The fairy tale that we were protecting freedom was always a lie. The truth is we live in a system that rewards sociopaths and sociopaths do what's good for them. Nationalism is their enemy. Populism is their enemy because it gets in the way of their balance sheets. For Black Pilled, I'm Devin Stack. If you'd like my ammunition, to get more ammunition, you waited too long. As tensions are growing, in the United States, it's becoming more obvious why the left has been feverishly attempting to disarm the right year after year, false flag after false flag. But something that often goes unnoticed is also the, the subtle ridicule and demonization of the people that have been preparing for what now seems to be almost inevitable conflict between the left and the right. The demonization of people that many call preppers. The reason the left doesn't want you to have guns might be obvious, but why they wouldn't want you to have food, water, and shelter for your family might not be. It's not what you might think. It's not as much that they want you to be ill-prepared or unable to survive an armed conflict as much as it is that they know that you will be afraid of initiating a conflict or even supporting those that might. If you are living paycheck to paycheck, or even if you have thousands of dollars in your bank account, but no tangible resources, you rely on the system to survive. So you will actively defend against threats to the system. And obviously, if you are on government assistance and unwilling to, to work for a living, you are certainly not going to want to fight for a living. Now, I've mentioned in previous videos that things will get much worse before they get better. I don't think everyone fully understands what I mean by that. If the current situation devolves into an actual civil war, parts of the country will be without food, without water, without power, without the internet, and without phone service, and without law enforcement. If you're in an urban area and you are not prepared to deal with all of these situations, then it very well could be a death sentence for you and your family. And I'm not exaggerating. So even though this isn't really what I usually do, let's talk about some of the basics because I think it could save some lives. First, let's talk about water. Water is actually more important than food. You will die of thirst before you die of starvation. And most people in urban areas don't even think about where they would get water if the water coming out of the tap were to dry up. Now, while you can survive on less, a good rule of thumb when calculating how much water you need to be on the safe side is about a gallon a day per person. Now, this can obviously become a difficult proposition for people who have limited space. So in addition to storing whatever water you can, it's a good idea to research local water sources and be prepared to purify any water you might harvest from the environment, whether it's rainwater or if there's a nearby river or something like that. If you can distill water, if you can collect rainwater, these are, these are things you need to be thinking about right now. The next thing is food. Now, survival food is actually pretty inexpensive these days. If you have the money, you can spring for freeze-dried gourmet meals and uh, if not you can stock up on high-calorie canned food uh, my personal favorite 
is peanut butter, which is pretty good survival food with a high calorie count and a decent shelf life. Uh, I think the Mormons actually have the right idea when it comes to having at least a year supply of food for each member of the family. And if you want to be prepared for the long term, uh, seeds are actually, if kept properly, pretty much indestructible. They'll last forever and are almost free. Seeds for vegetables and fruit are very cheap. The next thing, and arguably the most important thing, is ammunition. If you wait for a situation where you need more ammunition to get more ammunition, you waited too long. And without ammunition, you might as well not have food and water because the people with ammunition will just take whatever they want from you. The question of what types of firearms and ammunition you should have depends on your personal situation. Uh, but I think it's a good idea that everyone have at least one rifle. And I don't mean like a 22 caliber. That doesn't count. I mean like an AR-15 or a SKS. Something more powerful than a 22. A shotgun and a handgun. Again, probably more powerful than a 22. The amount of ammunition you need also depends on your personal situation, but I think a good rule of thumb is to always have more than you can carry. And if you know you're going to be stuck in one place, honestly, I would get as much as you can reasonably store. Next, and probably the most overlooked thing you can get, is a means to communicate. Many of you listening to this have never lived in a world without the internet and assume it'll just always be there. This is a pretty big assumption, considering how vulnerable the internet is to both physical and digital attacks. So, if the internet can go out because of a thunderstorm, you better believe it'll go out if there's a civil war. This applies to your digital phones, so your cell phone networks as well. Uh, I cannot emphasize enough how important it is right now to familiarize yourself with alternative communication methods like amateur or ham radio or at the very least a citizen band or CB radio. Good comms are vital. Otherwise, you're going to have no idea what's going on. Think of all the information that just on a normal week you get from the internet, the television, or your phone. If you think you get panicked when you accidentally leave your phone at your desk when you go out to lunch, just imagine how panicked you're going to be when there's no internet at all for weeks on end when there's a war going on outside. And if you don't have the, the money or the ability to invest in two-way communications at the bare minimum, you need to pick up maybe one of those cheap solar-slash-crank-powered shortwave emergency radios that you can buy almost anywhere. They're dirt cheap. And believe me, it, it'll be better than nothing. Which leads me to the next thing, which is uh, power. Power could become just as scarce as the internet and just as fast. As far as long-term solutions, I think solar is probably the most viable option for most people. Solar panels are silent, they require little to no maintenance, and most importantly, they don't require fuel. A gas generator's great until you run out of gas. Speaking of fuel, let's talk about transportation. Again, this depends completely on where you need to go and what you need to take with you. If you want to get out of the city, can you make it to where you're going on one tank? You think you're just going to be able to waltz right into a gas station and fill her up? Being stranded at the side of the road, halfway to your cabin, might be worse than staying in the city. And what about alternative transportation that doesn't require fuel, like a bicycle? Would you be able to make it to where you're going with everything you need? These are all questions you should have answers for before there's an emergency. And last but certainly not least is medical considerations. Not only should you have a standard first aid kit, but if it's a civil war we're talking about, you should also have the means to treat gunshot wounds. Not just the medical equipment, but the medical know-how in the form of printed books. I don't recommend any particular combat medic book. There are several available, 
but limited or no access to emergency services and hospitals is something you should definitely think about. Always remember, if the left doesn't want you doing it, if the left is demonizing it, it's probably good. And prepping is no different. Now that we've gone over some of the basics, and, and comment below if you think of something I might have left out or if you have something you think can help people out. But let me just say also, I don't think it's time to panic yet. Uh, that's why we're talking about this now. If it was time to panic, the grocery store shelves and gun stores would already be empty and this conversation would be pointless. It's always a good idea to get the insurance policy before your house is on fire. But you'd be, you'd be crazy to not at least take this seriously, uh, considering that our neighbors to the left right now are playing with matches for black pill. In the past several days, we've watched as the ruling class and the leftist media has done what it's been doing my entire life and pushed the diversity lie onto the brainwashed masses as images of low-skilled and no-skilled bad parents and criminals fill our screens. They screech louder and louder about how we must accept these invaders into our neighborhoods that we, not they, live in. Let them into the hospitals that we, not they, must share with them. Let their children into the schools that our, not their, children attend and generally share the meager table scraps they have tossed onto the floor for us while grinning as we fight like animals to protect what little we have left. But they don't do it just because it amuses them, although I'm, I'm beginning to think that might be part of it. They do it because the more they can splinter and annihilate our culture, the easier it is for them to control and intimidate us because they understand the true nature of power. They do it to keep wages down and force them down even lower so they can continue to live off the slaves that are too busy fighting for the unwanted speck of meat they discarded from their plates. And when we're not forced into fighting to protect our own people, we're forced into protecting theirs. We fight their wars against their competitors around the world so they can increase their treasure and conquer new territories for them to house even more slaves. This is the world we live in, and you might think I'm exaggerating, but what if I told you they've admitted this openly? Hollywood, the propaganda wing of the ruling class, has made several films sympathetic to immigration and open borders, but because they have been boiling the frog slowly and conditioning the public over the span of, of decades, you have to go back quite a few years to really see the mask slip. One film in particular that includes some really stunning admissions is the 2002 film Gangs of New York. Gangs of New York was directed by Martin Scorsese, produced, among others, by Harvey Weinstein, and his production company, Miramax Films. It was nominated for Best Picture, and the cast is a virtual who's who of Oscar-winning actors. Gangs of New York is one of those movies that Hollywood claims is based on a true story in order to sell tickets, but in reality is mostly fictional and doesn't even really match up well with the official ruling class telling of history. But that said, it does contain some very, very important truths. If you watch any of my videos, I know this is going to be a longer one, this is the one to watch. The film begins in New York in 1846, but because the producers likely saw Braveheart and were trying to cash in on the whole Celtic barbarian aesthetic, it's a bit confusing at first as we watch the two groups of rival Irish gangs preparing for an epic battle in the neighborhood called Five Points. 
What isn't clear, but will be explained later, is that these two gangs consist of two different groups. The group of American-born Irish who have some ties to the founding, and the new immigrant Irish. Now, this is a stunning admission. For some reason, in 2002, Hollywood was completely fine with highlighting the problems of multiculturalism. Problems that can exist even between two people with roots in the same part of the world. The natives, as they called themselves, see themselves as different, as real Americans. Americans whose fathers died in the Revolutionary War. Americans who came to the country before it was America to create and build the country, not inhabit what others had built. They are no longer Irish. They feel different because they have a connection with the founding of the country that today Hollywood and all other carpetbaggers on the left will tell you doesn't matter at all as they tear down the statues of your ancestors and seek to rewrite your ancestors' laws and desecrate their culture. But I digress. Maybe Hollywood was able to admit these important cultural aspects because both groups were white. Well, sort of. They were, they were Irish, but <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm, I, I couldn't resist. Anyway, <laughs> so in this battle, the natives defeat the newly arrived Irish by killing their leader. Daniel Day-Lewis, playing the part of Bill the Butcher, declares victory over the leader of the Irish immigrants, simply called Priest, uh, played by Liam Neeson. After Priest dies, his son runs away, and time passes. We then fast forward to that same boy, all grown up and newly released from prison. This is Leonardo DiCaprio, playing the part of the Priest's son, who is now called Amsterdam. As soon as he's free from prison, the first thing he does is to dispose of his Bible in the most dramatic fashion possible. Hollywood has always had an anti-Christian fetish, so no real surprises there. Things have changed in five points since Amsterdam was a boy, but a few things are still the same. For instance, Bill the Butcher is still the man in charge. It's now 1862, and the Civil War is heating up around the country. There's an environment of chaos and anarchy in the city. The Civil War is an ongoing theme along the periphery of the movie, and another thing the filmmakers will, will keep repeatedly doing is they keep trying to conflate the new Irish immigrants with blacks. There's a constant theme of slavery. The new immigrants are always hanging out with blacks and another quote-unquote marginalized groups. They even go so far as to, and this is pretty shocking that they did this in 2002, but the immigrants even enjoy the company of a statistically impossible amount of transgender people. The film seems to be trying to lump everyone into two big groups. The same two groups they use today. The whites, who founded the country and, and their descendants. And then the other group, everyone else. The left hasn't just recently decided to attack white males in the last few years. That has always been their target. The difference now is that they just make it more obvious because they've been winning. And they don't have to beat around the bush anymore. Especially as whites become outnumbered. Another group the film defines... And this is actually pretty shocking. A third group that is almost never spoken about in Hollywood films because much of Hollywood itself belongs to this group. This group <coughs> is the ruling class. This film, despite its many other flaws, does a stunningly good job of somewhat accurately showing the audience a glimpse of the ruling class, how they interact with people, 
and why they seem to want a, a constant flood of immigrants. In fact, one of the first things we see is a local politician welcoming new immigrants, getting off the boat and bribing them with food and coffee to try to get their vote. We then see this same politician meeting with Bill the Butcher, who you could say is at this point similar to a figure like the Godfather, the head of an organized crime community. And much like in real life, rather than the ruling class looking to clean up this illegal power structure, they are looking for ways to use it for their own purposes. Just like we've seen the ruling class in modern times, like when Robert Mueller let Whitey Bulger kill people en masse with the full knowledge of the FBI as long as he did what Mueller wanted. And the same thing with the uh, Obama administration working with MS-13 and allowing Islamic extremists to deal cocaine. And quite frankly, endless examples that go all the way back to the founding on both sides of the aisle. This is, in fact how the ruling class operates in this country and, country and countries around the world. It's not just the narcotic smugglers south of the border running those governments with violence or, or Jewish oligarchs and organized crime in Russia or, or even the mafia in Chicago. This is how every government around the world, including our own, going all the way back to the founding. Washington himself, in many ways, was a crime boss, if not a war criminal, who often threatened Congress, and ruled through intimidation. At the end of the day, intimidation is what rules and controls humans. And if you have a lot of money, but you're not very intimidating, you find people who are, and you pay them off to do your dirty work behind the scenes. This is how the world works now, and it's how the world worked back then. It's, it's just surprising how honest this movie is about the whole thing. In this scene, we see the local politician who represents the ruling class. And, and in another stunning aspect of the film, uh, by the way, is the quiet, unassuming banking class worm tongue character who's always hovering close by but never really says anything. Uh, they're trying to get the support of Bill the Butcher to intimidate voters and to do his dirty work. He explains exactly why the ruling class has to make these unholy alliances rather than just openly using law enforcement to oppress the people. The appearance of the law must be upheld, especially while it's being broken. The appearance of the law must be upheld, especially while it's being broken. Think of all the ways that applies to today and today's ruling class. This is why, at a certain point, it becomes impossible to clean up the corruption. Once you start pulling on that thread, you unravel the entire system. The ruling class is inseparably connected to organized crime and always has been. So after this meeting with Bill the Butcher, we go back to uh, Amsterdam, who has returned to the underground tunnel where he buried some personal items as a boy, and he meets up with the uh, immigrant Irish slash Team diversity. He gets the lowdown on what's been happening since he left and since his father was killed, and also meets the predictable, strong, independent woman character that seems to be mandatory in every single movie made after 1990. Uh, played by Cameron Diaz. Diaz. Is that an is that an Irish name? I guess it doesn't matter. Neither is DiCaprio. 
cultural appropriation, you see, it's, it's okay since we're just talking about cultureless white people anyway. So later on, Amsterdam's friend takes him to go sell some things they've stolen, and we see yet another aspect of government corruption that goes all the way back to the founding and before. The dirty cop. This cop used to be one of the Irish immigrants that fought with Amsterdam's father, but has now sold out and is working for the establishment. One of the perks, of course, is he takes a cut from the lower-level gangs, like this one. And in exchange, he allows them to continue to operate. This, again, is a fundamental principle of how the ruling class operates. It's always turning a blind eye here and arresting your rival there so they can get their cut of your stolen goods. Remember that. It's not just dirty cops taking a cut from two-bit thieves. The culture that allows this to happen goes all the way to the top. It's the very fabric of our society. We are all ruled by intimidation, and it's all about who can intimidate who. Because the cop is higher in the hierarchy than these thieves, he's allowed to dominate them and exploit them. But as we'll see later in the film, there will be a reversal of roles when the cop encounters those who are above him in the hierarchy. And that is when he will be intimidated and extorted. Think of it as a giant pyramid scheme with countless sociopaths stabbing each other in the back, trying to be the ones at the top. Welcome to humanity. In fact, it's, it's this aspect to humanity that leads Amsterdam to meeting Bill the Butcher, the man who killed his father. They've gone to pay their tribute to the men above them in the hierarchy in the same exact way the men above you in the hierarchy demand large portions of your paycheck that they take from you with a threat of violence. I mean, sure, they've made it all very official-sounding, calling it a, a tax code and added lots of paperwork to confuse as many people as possible. And, and this also allows their friends, who are higher up in the pyramid scheme, to avoid making the same kind of payments that the people at the bottom have to make. But it's all the same thing, really. You're all paying tribute to the ruling class to avoid violence that will happen to you if you don't. Like everything else, it's rule through intimidation. So Bill the Butcher tells the young gangsters about a new job they can do for him. There's a, a ship in the harbor he'd like them to rob. Of course, he doesn't even need to mention that even though they will be doing all the work and taking all the risk, they will, once again, be prepared to pay their tribute to the men above them in the pyramid scheme once they do the job. So they go to do the job, but find out someone has beat them to it. They still need to pay tribute, so they decide to steal one of the bodies and sell it. This impresses Bill the Butcher, as does Amsterdam's ability to beat up one of his henchmen. And so through violence, intimidation, and brutality, Amsterdam begins to move up in Bill the Butcher's organization and the social hierarchy at large. Later we see Bill the Butcher again meeting with the uh, ruling class. The politician tells him that in order to keep the public happy and under the impression that the law is being upheld, that they need to put on a show and publicly hang some scapegoats. He explains that they shouldn't hang any of the real criminals because they're assets. But to find innocent men or, or men of no consequence, people that have outlived their usefulness or 
people that have become nuisances to the ruling class or the uh, organized crime gangs uh, get these people they don't need anymore, pass them off as criminals and hang them in the public square to keep up the appearance of law and order. This is another tactic of the ruling class. They never seem to be able to prosecute the real criminals, but they're always fast to throw the book at those who have become a thorn in their side. This is the real purpose of law enforcement, to keep the little people who commit crimes from becoming big people who commit crimes, or to prevent rivals from creating their own criminal enterprises that would threaten their own, all the while giving the public the impression that the law is being upheld because, as he said before, the appearance of the law must be upheld, especially while it's being broken. And the best way to do that is through intimidation. And I don't know what's more intimidating than a public hanging. Another strangely accurate insight this film offers is shown later on in the film when it gives us a, a glimpse as to why the ruling class really wants immigrants. The ruling class politician once again asks Bill the Butcher to get new immigrants to vote for him and explains they need more and more immigrants because they need more and more votes. It's all about votes and maintaining power. This idea is actually disgusting to Bill because for all of his faults, he has what these immigrants don't have. He has a genetic connection to the people that founded the country. And because of that, he's protective of the society in a way that someone who, who comes to enjoy that which is already created can't possibly expect to appreciate in the same way. Or as Bill himself explains, My father gave his life making this country what it is. Murdered by the British with all of his men on the 25th of July, Anno Domini 1814. You think I'm going to help you befoul his legacy? By giving this country over to them was had no hand in the fighting for it? Why, because they come off a boat crawling with lice and begging you for soup? The ruling class politician, of course, he doesn't feel the same kind of loyalty to the country. For him and his silent, worm-tongued friend, it's all about power. We see this reinforced as the camera pans around to show men who are fresh off the boat receiving their citizenship only to be suited up and then sent into the meat grinder of the front lines of the Civil War to replace those who are coming back in caskets. The ruling class wants immigration because they want slaves that vote for them and fight their wars. Some things never change. So fast forward, and I'm skipping a lot of uh, aspects of the film, like the uh, the love story stuff and the whole Amsterdam being conflicted about working for the man who killed his father and, and planning to get revenge someday because uh, those aren't really what's important about this movie. I'm just focusing on the, the glimpses of the, the nature of the ruling class and the nature of power that this movie accurately gives us. The rest of it's just filler or added to get your, your girlfriend to want to go see the movie with you and overlook all the violence because they get to see Leonardo DiCaprio and, and Cameron Diaz pretend to be Irish together. One of these glimpses of truth comes when Bill the Butcher explains how he survives and how he rules. Fear. A spectacle of fearsome acts. The spectacle of fearsome acts. That's what preserves the order of things. Fear. Power is always about intimidation. 
You know, it used to confuse me why Muslims would conduct terror attacks on the countries that were letting them in with open arms. It seemed to be completely counterproductive. I couldn't understand how it would help them to achieve their goals. It seemed like it would do the exact opposite. Now, certainly many of these attacks we now know were false flags performed by the ruling class themselves. Uh, Using this same unholy alliance we see in the movie, the ruling class leveraging the violence of others to get the things that they want done. But whether you're talking about those false flags or or talking about legitimate terror attacks, it, it doesn't really matter. It all boils down to the same thing. It's the spectacle of fearsome acts. It's always about intimidation. I remember years ago when, when South Park wanted to show Muhammad in an episode, and Comedy Central forced them to censor it. In the same episode, the censors allowed the depiction of Jesus in the most blasphemous way possible. The whole thing was very revealing. The executives at Comedy Central were afraid to show Mohammed in a completely normal situation because of what had happened in the whole Charlie Hebdo incident. They were being ruled by intimidation and by fear. The spectacle of fearsome acts had controlled their behavior. Christians, on the other hand, aren't intimidating at all. So they had no problem at all allowing this disgusting depiction of Jesus while censoring the normal appearance of Muhammad. It's always about fear and intimidation. So later on, when the film is demonstrating once again how multiculturalism doesn't work, how instead of a melting pot, there is a a series of self-segregated communities all competing for resources and power, Bill is told in Chinatown that his apprentice, Amsterdam, is the son of his fallen arch-nemesis, the preacher from the the beginning of the film. He's told that Amsterdam is planning to kill Bill the Butcher to avenge his father. Because of this, Amsterdam's plan is foiled, and Bill decides to spare him after putting on a show, or, in other words, a spectacle of fearsome acts. Amsterdam is consequently nursed back to health by Cameron O'Diaz and declares war on the butcher. The butcher calls on the cop from earlier in the film, who, as I said, is lower in the hierarchy, to go take care of the problem, but he fails. And now Amsterdam, having learned the true nature of power, puts on his own display of a fearsome act. He, too, is now attempting to rule through fear and intimidation, because that is the only way to move up in the hierarchy. In a system that rewards brutality, the only way to move up is to be more brutal than your opponent. And Amsterdam has finally learned the lesson that most NPCs will never learn. They will refuse to believe it because it contradicts their carefully crafted programming. It goes against everything they are ever taught in public by any of these leaders. They are told again and again and again that power is only gained by by turning the other cheek and through nonviolence. When clearly they don't believe what they're saying because the ruling class never uses peaceful protest to get what they want. It's always through threats of violence. Always. If the secret to the ruling class and their power were to be revealed, the hierarchy would be overwhelmed with violence and chaos 
And that can never, ever, ever be allowed. This is a secret that must be kept safe in order to preserve the hierarchy, which is why it's amazing how accurately and often the mask is allowed to slip in this film. Bill the Butcher responds with yet another fearsome act. He tortures Amsterdam's friend, the one that betrayed him, but who Amsterdam had since forgiven. And in this scene, Amsterdam kills his friend in both an act of mercy, but also resolve. He knows that power comes from violence, and he is focused now on gaining power and overcoming the emotional blocks and the programming that even a criminal in the lower levels of the hierarchy must overcome to claw their way to the top. The ruling class, the, the politician at the top of the pyramid, begins to notice the shifts in power and violence. And he does what the people at the top of the pyramid do best. He attempts not to fight these criminals, but to leverage their violence and their power for his own needs. Amsterdam, still clinging to the idea that there are some peaceful solutions when dealing with this hierarchy of brutality, naively finds an Irishman that he thinks he can convince to run and uh, be their voice in the ruling class. That's when, in the following scenes, the film openly praises voter fraud as the new Irish immigrants vote numerous times to elect their candidate. The audience is now exposed to yet another truth, that in pursuit of power, nothing should be off the table. That if you want to win, you must employ every tactic available to you, because if you don't, your opponent will. But since they were willing to do what it takes, the Irish actually end up winning the election with, with voter fraud. And then in yet another stunning admission, in this rare cornucopia of truth on celluloid... Monks already won by 3,000 more votes than there are voters. Three, make it 20, 30. We don't need a victory, we need a Roman triumph. But we don't have any more ballots. Remember the first rule of politics. The ballots don't make the results. The counters make the results. After the vote, Bill the Butcher, who's well aware of the voter fraud and the outcome of the election, decides to remind people of how the hierarchy really works. He goes and publicly kills the Irish immigrant candidate, in another violent spectacle. Now, this, of course, dismays the establishment because this imaginary structure has to be respected at all costs. I mean, if this Irish member of the ruling class could be killed by Bill the Butcher, that threatened the structure in which he himself used for power and protection. The ruling class must remain untouchable no matter what. And so with some interesting symbolism on his clothing that's too obvious to miss, he goes and he visits Bill the Butcher to explain that he has crossed the line. But Bill, aware that without fear and without intimidation, these politicians, their, their authority is meaningless. He tells him to leave five points and that he'll be killed if he ever comes back. Now, while all this is going on, the Civil War is still happening uh, the ruling class is, is beginning to run out of immigrants to send to war, and they begin to actually just draft members of the public. They exempt themselves, of course, by creating a loophole that allows you to buy your way out of the draft so that members of the ruling class can avoid fighting their own wars, and that only the people at the bottom of the pyramid will ever have to shed any blood. The lower classes begin to riot in response, and it is in this environment of chaos that Amsterdam, 
challenges Bill the Butcher to a final showdown. Neither one is willing to be intimidated, so the only answer is to eliminate one or the other. At this point, we're treated to uh, glimpses of the ruling class discussing the violence as casually as one might talk about a, a billiards game. They're disconnected and insulated. They have mastered the hierarchy and are confident in their positions in it. Meanwhile, the streets below descend into chaos, and Amsterdam and Bill the Butcher will have their fight. In this climax of violence, death, and brutality, the audience is reminded once again that the only way the ruling class can manage to stay in their positions of power is if they're able to maintain the necessary threats and intimidation needed to keep the public in line. That without this threat of violence, they're not just vulnerable, but the most vulnerable members of society. These scenes also serve as a reminder to the ruling class themselves as to why it's so important for them to maintain control over the brutal forces within the hierarchy. That without them, they are nothing. And so in response, they use the only power that really matters in society, intimidation and brutality, and they order the soldiers to turn their guns on the citizens to put down the insurrection. As Amsterdam and Bill the Butcher fight to the death. And as Bill the Butcher, the so-called native, meets his end at the hands of the immigrant, the metaphor is too obvious for anyone to miss. And in the end, as if to admit visually the truth that these power dynamics never change, the last shot in the film shows time's passage until we're left with a skyline that prominently features the Twin Towers that, at the time of this film's release, had already fallen in the world's most infamous spectacle of a fearsome act. It's in this moment we are left to reflect on the true nature of power what it meant in the past, and what it means for the future. For Blackpilled, I'm Devin Stack. As much as the baby boomers fought to overturn and rebel against and eventually destroy the American culture that existed before them, one thing that I have always found interesting is how much these same champions of counterculture that sadistically dismembered their heritage and mocked every tradition their parents had gifted them would at the same time romanticize this same culture they worked so hard to undo. In the 1980s and 90s, there were a flurry of television shows and movies that seemed to acknowledge a yearning for something, a, a not-so-quiet acknowledgement of a loss that nobody could quite put their finger on, a, a bitter regret that was much more than anything that could be explained away by the phenomenon of nostalgia. While these homages to a paradise lost forever sometimes included, you know, a little bit of ridicule of their favorite boogeyman, the, the puritanical patriarchy that always had been the thankless guardians of this now extinct culture, there did exist a recognition a deep remorse even, that these were the good old days. One of the most popular examples was even called Happy Days. But unfortunately, Pandora's box had already been opened. The genie 
could not be stuffed back into the bottle. The monster that the baby boomers had unleashed would grow and mutate and seek to preserve itself, something it could never do if everyone was looking back and quietly asking themselves if perhaps, just maybe, they'd made a terrible mistake. After this period of longing that went on for about a decade, it wasn't that long before these fantasies had to be distorted. Something that was easier to do once those who lived through the era grew old and the the memories began to fade. After a while, the sadness began to turn into bitterness. And as one might expect, the yearning was replaced with mocking and ridicule like a a spurned lover who finally gets past the grief stage and as a coping mechanism has to convince themselves that there was nothing good about their ex that they once loved. They have to pervert every memory they had of their time together to fit this new narrative that they're better off without them, that they had simply outgrown them. But it wasn't just important for the baby boomers to forget and, and smear the past they had thrown away to to help them survive and get on, although in a very real way, it was about self-preservation. You see, a new generation was growing up now, growing up in a completely different world. The new normal that had been created, crafted by the baby boomers, a world of broken homes, of a broken society filled with broken people. They had smashed everything with the hammer of revolution without ever bothering to rebuild anything in its place. And now this new generation, raised in the rubble and smoldering ashes of the baby boomers' devastating culture war, they were looking at these images of nuclear families with attentive and loving parents, uh, affordable schools you could pay your tuition just by having a summer job at the corner store. The corner store that didn't have any bulletproof glass, and if you didn't have enough money to pay your bill, it was okay because everyone knew and trusted each other. They lived in communities with a shared culture and history. They knew each other by name. They didn't even lock their front doors. What's more, everyone was happy. And they were happy without drugs, without antidepressants, without casual sex? What would this new generation, exposed to these images, what would they think if they saw this time, this place that now seemed like some kind of mad utopia and realized that it was gone? Or more importantly, why it was gone? Imagine the terror, the panic, that the baby boomers felt standing over the corpse of this beautiful and lost culture, the murder weapon still in their hands, dripping with blood, as Generation X dazzled by this wonderful paradise that so starkly contrasted the reality they knew, began to slowly piece together what it was that had happened. So like a deer in headlights, the baby boomers, fearing what would happen if they didn't, decided to hide the body. The movie Pleasantville was just one of the many tools they used to bury the body. 
The campaign weaponized against Generation X. The best way to explain it is that the baby boomers acted the same way a brutal dictator might act. But instead of it being Kim Jong-il banning all Western media in North Korea and telling his people that everyone beyond their borders was in some nightmarish hellscape and that North Korea was the true utopia, something he had to do because if the people were to discover the truth, they might overthrow him or worse. The boomers, using the same formula and reasoning, told Generation X that the 1940s and 50s, despite what it might look like on TV, was really a, a nightmarish hellscape full of misogyny, patriarchy, oppressive religion, and, and worst of all, whiteness. The baby boomers often explained how they had brought revolution and, and fought the man, and, and now these times were the real utopia. They told Gen X this again and again as they subjected them to this never-ending celebration of the free-loving 60s and 70s. And then to make sure it stuck, they institutionalized it with cultural Marxism as part of the curriculum. Pleasantville was written and directed by Gary Ross, who incidentally worked on Ted Kennedy's presidential campaign as well as the campaigns of Michael Dukakis and both of Bill Clinton's presidential runs. He comes from a Jewish family that's been working in Hollywood for generations and has written and directed several films, including his first film, Big, which he wrote but didn't direct, and most recent film, Ocean's 8, that he both wrote and directed. The movie begins its assault on the baby boomer's murder victim by mocking the era of the 1950s with an over-the-top 1950s sitcom similar to Leave it to Beaver. The name of the town where the husband and wife and two children live in their 1950s home that most of you watching would never be able to afford, especially on a single income. In a perfect neighborhood where everyone is happy. We're briefly introduced to this show as we watch a, a promo that's obviously being played in present day or, or because this movie is 20 years old. 1998, on a cable network that plays old TV shows. It's an advertisement for a, a Pleasantville marathon. After the promo gives us a quick overview of the show, which of course is dripping with irony, making fun of how quaint and backwards the 1950s was, setting the stage for the rest of the movie. The film then quickly contrasts the 1950s pleasantness with shots of 1998 to try to elicit a, a superior feeling out of the audience. Several quick shots of the new hip America, including a, a shot of the new edgy fat of the time, which was a tongue ring. We see how different everything is, including the demographics. We're now introduced to our main character, who's, who's kind of a, a nerdy white kid in suburbia. This is followed by a succession of scenes that kind of paint a very dark future for this young man and the people in his age group. First, we go to a man giving a presentation to the students. He's literally saying what boomers have been unapologetically telling everyone from Gen X through Z for the last two decades. Of course, salaries and opportunities are going down. That's why you just need to try harder, kids. And then we go to a classroom where a teacher is telling her class about the dangers of getting AIDS. The panic of heterosexual AIDS was, of course, all the rage back then. There was this big 
propaganda push to try to tell everyone that heterosexual AIDS was a huge problem. And they did that to increase the funding because the public saw it accurately as mostly a risk that gay people faced, which statistically speaking, it pretty much is. But at the time, it was AIDS this and AIDS that because they needed to scare some money out of the public and they hadn't yet normalized homosexuality. So nobody really felt a real obligation to pay millions of dollars into research into a disease they saw as only affecting a small portion of the population. Uh, We then go to another classroom. This teacher is talking about climate change. I'm sorry, back then it was global warm. Wait, nope. It was uh, the ozone layer where they wrongly predict that by 2010, the global temperature is going to skyrocket and and kill everybody. So right away, we have this contrast between this 1950s happy but little cheesing over the top past and this kind of dark, scary present that our main character, David, lives in. Now, after school, we go to David's home in the suburbs. Rows upon rows of McMansions occupied by baby boomers. Now, David is watching an episode of Pleasantville while his single mother, baby boomer mom, is chatting on the phone about her social life in the kitchen. It's obvious to the viewer that David wants nothing more than to be in that world on the television screen, to to have a mother who pays attention to him and a father that, well, a father. This really demonstrates what I'm talking about. There's this generation that this isn't even a memory to them. It's, it's completely foreign to him, but something deep inside him wants to be a part of that. So the next day, David is at school, and he's telling his friend about how much he likes Pleasantville and how the TV network is going to play a Pleasantville marathon. There's a trivia contest, and he's going to try to win the, the $1,000 prize. Uh, we also meet David's sister, who's a basic thought. Unlike David, who yearns to have a part of the past, she's a complete hedonist. She embraces this new culture, and she invites the the cool kid from school to come home to her house afterwards so they can have sex because her baby boomer mom is going out of town to party with some young guy. This, by the way, wasn't exactly atypical. I had a lot of friends that had a similar situation. They had a single mom. They had a big house that their dad, who they never saw, was paying for. And the mom would just leave and and party and let them do whatever they wanted in the house. So unfortunately for Generation X, Y, and Z, these are pretty typical kids. So that night they get into a fight over who can use the TV remote and it breaks. And then magically the doorbell rings and a crazy TV repairman played by Don Knotts, who was a regular in many 1950s TV shows, And after quizzing David on some obscure details about Pleasantville, he reveals a a magic remote control. And the magic remote control somehow transports them into the episode of Pleasantville that they're watching. So I I know the the beginning's pretty cheesy or whatever. It doesn't really matter. It's just, it's trying to get them from 1998 into this TV show. It's just a stupid plot device. Don't worry about it. So... Now they're in this TV show, and uh, they've taken the place of the son and daughter that are in that TV show. And after some discussion, they decide, well, they, they ought to play along because David knows so much about the show anyway. Uh, at first, it seems like it's going to be kind of just your typical fish-out-of-water story, but they immediately 
go after the fact that this new 1950s mother who, in sharp contrast, their 1998 baby boomer mom who is off doing God knows what with her younger man is attentive and and caring. Uh, They make fun of the fact that their new mother had prepared breakfast for them by exaggerating the portions to make the idea that their mother making breakfast for them is this completely over-the-top and insane thing. David's sister, Jennifer, hates this new world and complains endlessly about how she wants to go home and have sex with the guy from school that she invited over. David convinces her to play along, but she only agrees after meeting a cute boy from Pleasantville. So now we get a quick tour of Pleasantville. Nothing bad ever happens. You see, it's very important to exaggerate this aspect of the world. This is how the baby boomers have to deconstruct it. When Generation X looks at this world and they, they see a utopia, so the only way to tear it down is for the baby boomers to say, yeah, it is a utopia. It's too perfect. Can't you understand? That is why it must be destroyed. And this is where we get to the real troubling aspect of this film. If you've seen my videos before, you know I'm not one of these guys that gets hung up on symbolism or or pointing out, you know, secret satanic imagery. And I'm not saying that stuff doesn't exist. It's just not what I do. In fact, I don't think I've even mentioned the concept of Satanism in, in any of these videos. I'm more of an expert on storytelling and on propaganda. I dissect what the story is telling the audience and how it's trying to inject ideas and themes into your head using propaganda techniques. But this film, in addition to being all the things that I've discussed before, this smearing of the past, uh, hiding the body, is literally satanic. I don't mean that it's evil. I mean it's literal. it's satanic, as in promoting Satan. This entire movie is the story of the Garden of Eden. And if you doubt what I'm saying now, you won't once we get a little further into this. It is the story of the Garden of Eden, and it's a celebration of Satan convincing Eve to eat from the tree of knowledge and getting cast out of paradise. This is a theme that is central in modern Satanism. In fact, Here it is depicted in the satanic monument that was put on display recently in an American courthouse. This is the story. Now, I want you to think about what that means, not just for this movie, but also in the context of what I was talking about with destroying the culture. How could this movie simultaneously be satanic and also be propaganda meant to obscure the past? What does that tell you about the people who are responsible for destroying our culture? That they knew what they had was good and they purposely destroyed it because like modern Satanists, they valued exploring evil more than preserving good. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this right now because I think that I've planted that seed. And you're going to see exactly what I'm talking about as we go through the rest of the movie. It's, it's pretty obvious. Okay, so back to the movie. We are in paradise. Everything is way too perfect. Everyone is way too happy. There are no problems at all. That is until 
David tells Skip that maybe his sister isn't up for going out with him that evening. Now, that is when the first crack begins to form. They have poisoned the well by deviating from the routine that keeps this universe in order. The universe has skipped a gear. Now, worried that this might become a bigger problem if they continue to stray away from the script, David tells his sister that she has to go along with the routine to help preserve the order of the universe. Now, this is a metaphor for something else as well. This is a metaphor for what begins to happen to a society when outsiders come in and don't assimilate. They disrupt the order of things. Now, at first, it's in small, inconsequential ways, and the system will absorb some deviant behavior if the society is strong. But eventually, it begins to cause bigger and bigger problems until it threatens the existence of the society entirely. This is an aspect of the world that this film also exaggerates. It paints the routine as something bad and extremely rigid. It dictates the behavior of the native population to extremes. For example, when David shows up to work a little bit late, we discover that his boss has been stuck wiping the counter for hours and hours because David wasn't there to do his part of the routine, so he got stuck until David arrived. Later that night, Jennifer who is annoyed with her date treating her respectfully and not trying to have sex with her, which is an odd thing to see considering how nowadays they've perverted the past even further and told us how people like Chip here would have just raped her by now. She demands that he take her to Lover's Lane. Uh, in this scene, Jennifer actually rapes Chip by today's definition. I'm not kidding. That's literally what happens. But of course it's okay because she's a woman. Uh, Lover's Lane is the Garden of Eden. We will see this again later in the film in a more literal and obvious sense, but Jennifer, in her pursuit for pleasure, has decided to disrupt the universe and just have sex with this boy she just met. And because this is a baby boomer's view of what is good and bad in culture, this is celebrated as the best thing that has ever happened in this paradise. Eve has just taken the apple and given it to Adam. They have now both eaten the forbidden fruit, and the universe is beginning to change. Where there was once black and white, good and evil, new, ambiguous colors are beginning to appear. Now, the subversive force that has entered their universe begins to spread as Skip tells his teammates about the forbidden fruit. And slowly we see the world that was too perfect and too happy. It begins to slip away. David is alarmed when he sees what's happening and he begs his sister to stop destroying the universe. But Jennifer, who values her own whims and her own wants and her own desires over the good of the society around her, just ignores him. So it's not long before all of the kids are going to the Garden of Eden and partaking of the forbidden fruit. It's all about pleasure-seeking and free love, and if it destroys the universe, that's okay. More and more, the subversiveness spreads, but of course, it's good. You see, it's good because it's, it's more vibrant, it's more colorful, it's not this dark, 
drab black or even worse white world that that you're a complete idiot if you want these changes are good because they're different and these changes don't go unnoticed it was only a matter of time before the evil white patriarchy caught wind of these differences in their universe whenever they show the mayor the embodiment of the white male patriarchy they frame the shot like an like an actual comic book villain Never are we asked, by the way, to walk in his shoes. What he might think of his world being turned upside down. These men who created and maintained this paradise are just automatically evil. Their sin, creating and maintaining a perfect world. The women are also noticing changes, but since women aren't part of the patriarchy, they are the victims. The victims of the perfect world that their patriarchy created for them trapped in this maddeningly happy existence. And when Jennifer gives the forbidden fruit to her mother by telling her about sex and explaining how to masturbate, the subversive force that she's brought with her into this world strikes again. This time, a tree in their front yard just catches fire. This is a new problem the community has never had to deal with before. David goes and gets the firemen, but they've never actually had to fight a fire before. This was paradise, and there were no fires in paradise. So David shows him how to put out the fire and is given an award by the mayor in this scene, where we also notice the first symbol to overtly call attention to the whiteness of the town. Now, everyone in Pleasantville is white, so it's only natural for the logo on that banner to show two white hands shaking, but it still sticks out because it's a logo that's been used so often in our world to represent multiculturalism, you know, the white and the and the, the brown hand shaking, that simply by having two white hands shaking, it, it sticks out like a sore thumb. This will come into play in more overt ways later in the film, but I just wanted to point it out now. I also want to point out this is part of David's story arc. See, David... In the beginning, he really likes Pleasantville. He likes it the way that it is. I mean, after all, he's a white male. He's, he's being recognized here by the patriarchy for putting out the fire because the fire was caused by the new subversive forces that are changing the community. He's being tempted to join the evil patriarchy that wants to preserve the existing culture. So now that he's been tempted by the patriarchy, he goes to work and he is tempted by the subversive forces in town. This is where a maddening bit of irony in today's context begins. David discovers that all the books in town are blank until he tells the stories of the books that he's read. That's when the books magically fill in. He's spreading forbidden knowledge into the town, which starts a new trend of people reading. This, of course, is very much frowned upon by the evil patriarchy who doesn't like the free flow of information. You see, even though this was made just 20 years ago, this was when the left fancied themselves the defenders of free speech. How times have changed. The truth is that they only want free speech if it helps them subvert a society. After that, free speech has to go. Now, I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here, 
Basically, David's mom is forced to wear makeup to hide the fact that now that she's sexually liberated, she's now in color. Uh, David brings an art book to his boss at the diner. Almost all of the art is either garbage abstract art or sexual in nature, of course. Uh, David is becoming more and more confident and asks a girl out. Uh, Jennifer is also changing. She's evolving in the same way the feminism she represents evolved. She's changing from being sexually liberated to wanting to get serious about her education so she can grow up to be a strong, independent woman. Now, of course, that she's turned the universe upside down, uh, she's going to see what other resources she can squeeze out of it. Now we get to the part where David goes on his date, or rather he goes to the Garden of Eden with his date. This is a kind of turning point in this universe and in the film. It's just like the Garden of Eden story in the Bible and in Satanism. Eventually, God finds out his children have been eating the forbidden fruit and the town is about to be kicked permanently out of paradise. While David is in the Garden of Eden with Eve, his mother, who's walking around, notices some artwork that the diner owner has now started to paint on the windows of the diner and starts an affair with him. Uh, because her husband, the man who helped provide and maintain the paradise, was, of course, part of the evil patriarchy. Never once are the needs of her husband ever even imagined, thought about, considered at a single point ever. Why? Because he's the enemy. He's an evil white male. Now, at the same time, Jennifer, she's had her fun with Skip. And because he's also an evil white male, she rejects him. And because he's just some stupid white guy with no feelings, you know, he walks away and so what? Just like David's father, who comes home to an empty house for the first time ever, and he wanders through the home not knowing what to do. And now with this crescendo of everything going wrong in the universe, we see unmistakable imagery that should once and for all convince you that this is the Garden of Eden. Eve literally plucks the fruit from the tree and brings it to Adam slash David. And that's when God shows up. For the first time in paradise, there is a storm. The rain falls over the entire town and they are all at once and forever cast out of paradise. David's dad goes and alerts the patriarchy about what's happening. The evil white patriarchy, all lit and framed like comic book villains, are dismissed as reactionary bigots. Their concerns about being, I don't know, forever thrust out of paradise are completely minimized as one of the men shows them that his wife burnt his shirt and like that's the worst thing that's happened to him. That's the worst thing that happened to these people. These people that maintained a paradise that was perfect, that everyone was happy, they lost it. And really all they lost was, you know, iron shirts. So you see, the only reason the men wanted to maintain the way things were was so they could have dinner and neatly pressed shirts. The patriarchy is domineering and evil and only wants to preserve paradise because they're oppressing everyone else. Now, the next day, David's mother leaves his dad, her husband of God knows how many years, for the guy she just met and, and had an affair with. And again, his father, whose only sin was providing a good life for his family and being a good husband and father 
is ridiculed and put down. His needs are not as important as his wife's whims. The subversive new culture has completely taken hold and paradise is gone. And now in this multicultural reality, and I, yes, I said multicultural, they're all white, but some of the people are now in color. And the filmmakers use this as a not-so-subtle metaphor for people of color, as we see when David is hassled by some evil white kids that don't like that he has a colored girlfriend. Now, the town calls a meeting, no coloreds allowed, of course, and with heavy-handed fascist symbolism, using lighting and framing that looks like it's right out of Triumph of the Will, we see the patriarchy rear its ugly, bigoted head. The symbol of the white hands shaking is more obvious now than ever. These angry fascists, they just don't like the changes because they want their, their shirts to be ironed. And now they need to stop it because they want their, their dinner cooked by their wives. Things begin to escalate in town. Uh, the white kids even try to lynch David's mother, who is now a, a person of color. And because he stands up to the, the white fascists, David himself finally becomes a person of color. And now, and now we return to the complete irony where the white fascists begin to burn the books of the colored people. You know, it, it amazes me how quickly the left has become a parody of themselves. They are the burners of books. This right here should be all the proof that you should ever need that the left projects. They project this fear on their enemies because that's exactly what they're going to do. And you know this because this is exactly what they started doing 20 years after making this. So understand that. Now, after some clashes, the town holds a trial to see what they should do about these new people of color. This is where the movie copies almost exactly the shots used in the film To Kill a Mockingbird, a movie about racist whites who attempt to imprison an innocent black man. At this point, it's obvious what the film is saying. The real reason the paradise was evil and it had to be destroyed because it was white. And white is intrinsically evil. And it's not until every last white person is changed into a person of color that the town can accept this new culture that subverted their paradise. Whites might have functioned well and been happy in the paradise they built and maintained until the outsiders showed up, the outsiders who didn't like this paradise. But now they have to be eradicated one by one for this new culture, which is incompatible with the whites, apparently. I don't know how much clearer the filmmakers could make this. This movie isn't just an excuse for destroying the past or propaganda that, that seeks to counter that yearning to gain back what was thrown away so carelessly by the baby boomers. It's a blueprint for the future. It's both a confession and a prophecy. Generation X and those that followed never experienced that paradise lost, and they never will. They will slowly be replaced until every last remnant of that world 
has changed and slipped away forever. This movie is telling you all of that. This movie is telling you that loud and clear, all the while giving a not-so-subtle nod to Satanism. And the most amazing thing of all of this is they managed to communicate all of this in an easy-to-swallow package that people paid money to see. And chances are, if you watch this movie, even after you've seen this, they, they did this so well that if you watch this movie, you might even still laugh at some of the charming jokes. Never again let it be said that the left can't meme. And in this case, the people behind the film and others like them didn't just bury the body. They convinced the younger generation to help them dig the grave. For Blackpilled, I'm Devin Stack. If you like my videos, make sure you like and subscribe. Make sure you share. If you'd like to support my videos, you can grab a copy of uh, Day of the Rope. Link is in the description. Or you can go to blackpill.com forward slash donate, where I'll keep an updated list of different ways you can support these videos. NPC is an acronym that stands for non-player character. They are the AI-operated characters in video games that react to input from the player. Because of the limitations on computer hardware and the complexity of writing AI capable of reacting to players in a way that truly mimics human behavior, NPCs, or bots, are usually pretty easy to spot. Anyone who has played a video game that includes NPCs will tell you that they are extremely formulaic and quickly become predictable in their responses, especially older NPCs. Let's use the primitive example of Pac-Man. In the game Pac-Man, the player is Pac-Man. The iconic yellow circle with a mouth that moves around the maze, gobbling up the pellets until they're all gone. Once the pellets have all been eaten up, the maze resets and you do it all over again. The NPCs in Pac-Man are different colored ghosts. Each ghost in Pac-Man has a unique set of rules in how it's going to react to the outside stimuli, or in other words, how it's going to react to what the player is telling Pac-Man to do with the joystick. The red ghost will always attempt to find the quickest way to reach Pac-Man, while the blue ghost uses a set of rules that actually cause it in some instances to run away from Pac-Man. They each use separate pre-programmed strategies to try to trap Pac-Man, and they never, ever stray from these strategies. The rules are so simple and predictable that players who have beat Pac-Man by playing the game to the uh, 256th level, which is the level that crashes the game because it runs out of memory, they're accomplishing this simply by memorizing the most effective path for each level. In other words, if you complete a level of Pac-Man by taking a certain route, you will know that taking that route will complete that level every single time you play it. The ghost will never figure out your strategy no matter how many times Pac-Man takes that exact same route because they're responding to the actions of Pac-Man using the exact same predefined set of rules. So if you were to record the game input of someone playing the perfect game of Pac-Man, you could play back that input into the game over and over and over again, and it would always be the perfect game. Recently, people have been pointing out that some humans behave in the same way that NPCs do. They say they aren't reasoning through their decisions, but rather feeding outside stimuli through predefined rules and then acting accordingly. 
This is an interesting way of looking at people that exhibit predictable behavior. People that seem to lack creativity and whose behavior, because it's dictated by a predefined set of rules, are just as easy to manipulate as the ghosts in Pac-Man. In some ways, it's hard to argue against this theory. I mean, there are extremely predictable people who do seem to be reacting to stimuli just using a predefined set of rules. But if this is true, aren't we all just NPCs? Aren't we all reacting to a complex set of rules that it's just that some people have much simpler sets of rules that make them easier to predict? So like the NPCs, they're, they're easy to spot. NPCs have evolved a lot since Pac-Man. In fact, the major difference, or the upgrade, I guess, between Pac-Man and the sequel, Miss Pac-Man, is that the programmers added randomness to the behavior of the ghosts. So while the NPCs, the ghosts, operate in a similar fashion using similar rules, in Miss Pac-Man, a random change in course is added randomly to the behavior of the NPCs so that the players can't just memorize patterns in the same way they could with Pac-Man. Each game is unique because the ghosts are less predictable, but still predictable enough to be beat by humans because their programming is fairly simple. Today's games use NPCs that are far more complex with more sophisticated sets of rules that also use some level of randomness to prevent repetitive behavior and make them harder to spot, but because we are still limited by the hardware and the software available in gaming systems, they still lack that same decision-making power of humans. But are humans anything more than just extremely complex NPCs with access to better hardware and better software? Still reacting to a set of rules programmed in their head, perhaps with some randomness caused by changes in things like hormone levels or blood sugar changes, or all the other changes taking place in the cacophony of biological factors going on inside the body at any given moment, but still, by and large, just reacting to a set of rules. I would say the NPC theory has merit, but that the difference isn't so much that these human NPCs are just reacting to stimuli in a way that makes them separate from quote-unquote thinking people. I think that's how all humans behave. The difference is that some people, much like the NPCs in video games, never change their set of rules. They aren't NPCs because they're following predefined rules. They're NPCs because those rules never change. Just as the ghosts in Pac-Man are limited by the code that was written 40 years ago, if you were to play a game of Pac-Man today, it'll react exactly the same way as it did in 1982. These Human NPCs have their rules written in their head, and they never perform any upgrades. They never revisit the code that was written in their head by their parents, the media, religion, or, or whatever influenced their set of instructions. They simply move through life and react to the stimuli using their original programming. An NPC's behavior is forever defined by their programmers. Sometimes NPCs are reprogrammed, just like the ghosts in Ms. Pac-Man. But an NPC will never be able to change its rules. It'll never be able to rewrite its own code. So if you don't want to be an NPC, you have to do what NPCs are unable to do. And that's be creative. Only those who are able and willing 
to revisit their programming and perform the necessary updates themselves will be able to rise above this predictable existence and automatic behavior of the mindless NPCs. For Blackpilled, I'm Devin Stack. I've heard it repeated time and time again that in order for the ruling class, the satanic ruling class, to do something to the unsuspecting slave class, that they must first telegraph it. They have to tell you about what they're going to do to you before they do it. I've heard lots of people say this, but I've never actually heard anyone explain where this idea comes from. I mean, if you really think about it, the idea isn't a new one. Think about how many fables there are in which um, a man makes a deal with the devil only to discover later that they were so wrapped up in the gift that the devil was bestowing on them that they didn't pay close enough attention to the fine print of the contract. You see, the devil, despite the power of his seductive nature, it seems, at least in mythology, that even he has to fully inform his prey of the consequences of accepting his gift before he can take their soul. So maybe this is the origin behind the idea that the ruling class has to fully inform their victims before they can feast on their souls. Maybe this is some kind of twisted moral code that they feel alleviates them from any kind of wrongdoing. Maybe it's some kind of twisted logic that justifies in their heads their predatory existence. There's really no way to know if this really is the the modus operandi of the the evil that's managed to pool and congeal at the top of the, the power hierarchy. But if it is, what then is the fine print that we're all missing? Where do they telegraph the consequences of allowing them to rule? Where is this obscure legal language that describes in detail exactly how they plan to ruin us? Some people suggest that the ruling class utilizes the same methods to communicate these hidden clauses in the social contract the same way they communicate a lot of things they don't want to openly admit. They use Hollywood. And and probably because there are so many instances that when examined closely, it does appear as if that's exactly what's happening. You know, the age-old argument of, is it art imitating life or life imitating art kind of gets pushed aside when some of these movies seem to depict future events with such stunning detail and accuracy that it seems that the only way this could happen is if the artists themselves had prior knowledge, or as crazy as it might sound to a lot of people, maybe they're even instrumental in the planning and the execution. One example of this is the film Wag the Dog. Wag the Dog is so close to reality, it doesn't even seem like it's the ruling class telegraphing what it is they intend to do. It seems like it's an instance of the ruling class rubbing it in our faces. Wag the Dog was released in 1997, and that's important to know because this was well before 9-11 happened, and it predates any popular understanding that there was a deep state by by decades. This is also a time before the internet was widely available to the public, so almost everyone got their news 
from the networks owned by billionaires that sometimes act like quasi-government agencies, you know, like CNN, or, or newspapers that are owned by billionaires who have very big contracts with the CIA. Wag the Dog was produced and directed by Barry Levinson, who just so happens to party in the Hamptons with Bill Clinton. That's a significant point, not just because it shows his deep state ties uh, and his ties to the ruling class, but because this coziness that Hollywood producers have with the ruling class, something Levinson is deeply aware of firsthand, is reflected and depicted in the film that he produced and directed. So if there's anyone equipped to give an accurate accounting of this, it's going to be Barry Levinson. In the context of today, it's easy to look back at Wag the Dog and kind of perceive the opening of this film as laughing in the audience's face. Even the title itself could be viewed as part of this obscured legal language of the ruling class. Wag the dog, on its face, just seems like an entertaining wordplay. It's not immediately apparent that there's any deeper meaning to it. Most of the public will see these words and just think it's a humorous but meaningless phrase. And so the film, in its first few moments, tells you exactly what it means, knowing full well that by doing so, it's not giving up any secrets to the sedated audience. It's simply giving them what they crave. Amusement. Why does a dog wag its tail? The film asks with a pleasant, unassuming serif font with patriotic yet folksy music kind of playing in the background. Because the dog is smarter than its tail, the answer comes. If the tail were smarter, the tail would wag the dog. They are telling you in just a few words, in just the first few seconds of the film, that the way that the world works is that the intelligent manipulate the unintelligent. That is the meaning of the title. But it goes beyond that. Since the title is Wag the Dog, not Wag the Tail, they're also saying that what you perceive as being the intelligent force behind world events is the complete opposite of reality. And they're smugly telling you this literally in black and white before the movie even starts. And before they tell you how they do it. If this film is telegraphing, it's doing it plain as day as those who are behind the film are laughing in the faces of the audience before the movie even begins. And now that the filmmakers have had their little joke, the film now begins with a political ad in a presidential campaign. The ad is cheesy, and we gather from the equally cheesy slogan, don't change horses in midstream, that it is a re-election campaign. The ad is telling the American public, don't upset the status quo, just... Go with the president you have because it's the best you can do and you wouldn't want to upset things. We now go to the White House that has approved this ad. It's after hours and in the basement in a secret room. Robert De Niro is playing a, a crisis manager of sorts. It seems that the election is only days away 
and the administration has just discovered that news that the president had sex with a young girl in the Oval Office is about to break. The president is in China on some sort of diplomatic trip, and the team has been assembled to deal with the crisis before the news breaks. The first thing Robert De Niro does is he tells the president's people to delay the president in China, tell the press that he's sick. He also tells them to begin spreading disinfo about some fictional B-3 bomber to create a fog around the president's trip to China and get the press talking about something unrelated to the scandal before it breaks. He also tells the administration to start rumors about a crisis brewing somewhere that he has yet to figure out the details on, but don't worry, he's on it. Knowing full well, the press will predictably parrot any talking points they put out directly or through deception. Next, we jump to a plane and on the plane to L.A. to see a Hollywood producer to help him produce this crisis that will distract the American people from the scandal in the Oval Office. De Niro explains they can make a fake war because the American people, they'll believe whatever they see on TV. He talks about how nobody questioned the Gulf War. They just went along with whatever they were told. Now, this is pretty stunning because this film was made before it was widely known that much of the Gulf War was a farce, that this performance right here of a young woman claiming to be a doctor that witnessed Iraqi soldiers taking babies out of incubators and killing them was actually a big lie. It was a manufactured story literally written by a PR firm with lines delivered by the daughter of a Kuwaiti ambassador to help lie the American people into a war, something that, by the way, never led to any consequences. It's also before the public knew of all the fake footage that CNN used during the war, quote-unquote war correspondents pretending to be under attack. Another thing that, again, no one got in trouble for, you and I know this now, but when Wag the Dog was released, the idea that the Gulf War had fictional components to it, at the very least, was an extremely fringe idea. The audience watching this in the theater was giggling at the idea that it was all just a play put on the public and thinking how what, what an imaginative premise they have, when in reality, it's quite possible they were rubbing it in your face. There was a joke, but that joke was on you. De Niro's character goes to Hollywood to talk to a Hollywood producer played by Dustin Hoffman, to convince him to help them with this deception they need to pull on the American people to try to distract them from the sex scandal. De Niro demonstrates the control he has over the press office by making a call and dictating what the press secretary should say while he's live at the podium. Again, this film was made in 1997, well before any kind of mini Bluetooth earpieces were available and well before any accusations that debate participants might be using some kind of earpiece device. At the time, this technology was kind of science fiction-y, or at the very least, it was for the general public. This impresses Dustin Hoffman's character, and he, of course, agrees to help with the deception. De Niro tells Dustin Hoffman that they're going to have to fake a war with Albania. They choose Albania because Americans are so poorly educated by government schools, most couldn't find Alabama on a map, let alone Albania. So the American public will just think whatever the people on TV tell them to think. Right away, they start talking about how to market the war, how to make money on it. They bring up the Yellow Ribbon campaign from the first Gulf War, 
and say that it was a manufactured movement that made them a lot of money selling overpriced yellow ribbons. I'm not aware of anyone who's actually researched this, but I would not be shocked if there was a kernel of truth in this. I hate knowing that that line in the movie likely generated a lot of lighthearted laughter in the theater as the audience watched in 1997. An audience that was probably giggling at how preposterous it was that something like that would or, or even could be faked. Nobody's laughing now. They also decide they need a reason for the war. They know Americans don't ask too many questions, so it doesn't have to be too elaborate. So in this movie that was made well before we were invading Iraq, looking for non-existent weapons of mass destruction, they decided to lie and claim that Albania has weapons of mass destruction. They hate us for our freedom, and they're going to try to destroy the great Satan that is the United States. Sound familiar? The newly assembled team also starts working on a song they can saturate the airways with once the manufactured war begins. Wars need theme songs. Theme songs that will bring the public together. After all, as they put it in the film, war is show business. Perhaps this also sounds familiar. I watch CNN, but I'm not sure I can tell you but before they can play the songs in the airways the first thing the team decides they need they need footage they can link to the press fake footage that'll pull at the heartstrings of americans again this was made in 1997 decades before the public became aware of the fake footage of the hollywood promoted white helmets and the fake syrian gas footage in 1997, this was all a joke. They show how easily Hollywood puts together this fake footage of the war-torn Albania with a young village woman holding a kitten. They argue about what cat should they use, or maybe they should use a dog. It's all just a giant joke. And it's also a joke when Robert De Niro's character tells the actress, who is playing the Albanian woman, that if she tells anyone that she was involved in this production, they will kill her. The press, of course, obediently plays the fake footage on repeat to the American people, as we now know they have done over and over and over again in the past so many times, we may never know the extent of their deception or the lives that have been needlessly lost because of their lies. But that's okay, because in 1997, this was still all just a joke. Now that the American people have been thoroughly fooled, they've pulled off the deception, we're introduced to an idea that was considered completely insane in 1997. We are now introduced to the deep state. You see, the CIA and the NSA, they know there's no war in Albania. And they apprehend Robert De Niro's character and they ask him to explain himself. And once again, we get more truth disguised as humor humor that the audience will laugh off and never take seriously because to believe what is being discussed would destroy this mythical view they have of their country robert de niro explains to the deep state that they need this fake war just as much as the president does 
He tells them that if the American people feel safe and secure, that the deep state will get budget cuts. He tells them that they have to put the scare into the American people so that they keep giving them money. But don't worry, guys. This is all just a joke, right? A short time later, the conspirators hit a bump in the road when the senator who's running against the president catches wind that the war is being faked. So he goes on television and just declares that fighting has stopped and the war is now over. The election is still a few days away, so they need to stretch it out a little bit longer. They decide a good way to keep this going is by telling the American public that a hero soldier was left behind and is now caught behind enemy lines. They want to market this with a campaign, so they choose a soldier that has a name they can market. They pick the name Schumann, then they fake a song, and they call it Good Old Shoe, that they plant in the National Archives. And then a deep state honeypot agent convinces a reporter that she just had sex with that he needs to play this song to motivate the people. And of course, the press runs with it. And then as icing on the cake, they astroturf a campaign of throwing old shoes into trees. The entire country is praying for Schumann to return home safely. Now, right here, I want to just pause for a second and draw your attention to this shot in the movie. This is Robert De Niro, Dustin Hoffman, and uh, whatever her name is, walking out of the gates at the White House. That means that the White House, at bare minimum, read and approved the script and gave them access to the grounds to shoot this. The rest of the White House footage can easily be shot somewhere in Hollywood on a set, but this shot right here had to be approved by the White House. And when they do that, they read and approve the entire script. So just something to keep in mind. So now that the whole country is waiting for this Schumann to be returned, they go to pick him up, only to discover that through some mix-up, the Schumann the military produces is a psychotic prisoner and a rapist. At this, This is the point where the movie really takes a turn into the absurd. It, it almost seems as if the filmmakers, well aware of how much truth they've already revealed, they need to slap on a few coats of satire for the sake of plausible deniability. This is also important because up until this point in the film, the audience, in some ways, can feel comfortable because at this point, while the government is being portrayed as being totally corrupt and out of hand, uh, morally bankrupt, nobody has been physically hurt yet as a result. And, and that's all about the change. So while many humans have trouble looking down uh, the road and, and seeing the horrors and the mass casualties that corruption leads to, it's not really apparent, or at least not nearly as apparent, as the danger of immediate physical injury and death. Even the lowest of IQ people watching this will understand that death and murder is bad. So in order for the filmmakers to keep telling their story, they're forced to kind of ratchet up the absurdity of the film so it disconnects these people a little bit further from reality. They're intentionally lowering the audience's suspension of disbelief because they don't want the audience to really believe what they're seeing. And the best way to do that is just to make everything really absurd. So Schumann is taking antipsychotics and is clearly in no condition to be presented to the American public as a hero. 
He has a fit, and that, mixed with some bad weather, causes them to get in a plane crash. Now, all the important people survive without a scratch. That's the ridiculous part. The truth here is that the pilots have died, and the group doesn't even care at all. It's not even mentioned. All that matters to them is maintaining the deception, no matter what the human cost. This is further hammered in when they hitch a ride to a payphone and the psychotic Schumann decides to rape a farmer's daughter. The farmer freaks out and, and shoots and kills Schumann. And the important people, the way they react, they feel nothing, literally nothing at all for the girl that was just raped. Or for that matter, Schumann, who was just killed. It's all about the deception. It's all about maintaining the deception. So they find a way to spin it. They just say that he was in a terrible plane crash. And now they put on an epic show. A show of his casket being returned home. Complete with a dog they have trained to follow the casket. The deception has finally been played out to its conclusion. The president is now sure to win re-election now. As the sheep in America just eat this up. They eat up the propaganda they're being spoon-fed, their bellies are full, and they are entertained. And this is the climax of the film, where Dustin Hoffman's character, the Hollywood producer that helped create this whole deception, he does the unthinkable. He decides he wants to take credit for the work. His sin is pride. He wants the world to know that it was him that was responsible for this entertainment. And of course, this is where we learn that even his life is expendable when it comes to maintaining the deception. The deception has to be protected at all costs because that is all that separates the ruling class from the slave class. Information is power. Or as they look at it, they are smarter. They are the tail that wags the dog. And because it's this knowledge that keeps them in power, it has to be kept from the public at all costs. So what we see here is both a warning to other storytellers in the ruling class that if you fail to go along with the deception, no matter how instrumental you might think that you are, never hold yourself above the deception. You are always expendable. What we see here is a submission stance. A submission stance by the producer and the director of this film who likely sees himself in this character. He's acknowledging that despite the role he may have played in revealing all these obscured truths, he knows how to protect the deception. And he knows what will happen if he fails. So is this the ruling class telegraphing to the public what they intend to do and what they have been doing for generations? Or is it all just a crazy coincidence? It's hard to watch this film and not think that it's not at least somewhat possible that this was indeed the ruling class giving the public a peek behind the curtain. You know, a lot of people forget even Saddam Hussein's information minister who was mocked widely in the media, mentioned this film, wagged the dog by name during the invasion of Iraq. Either way, the truths in this film can no longer be experienced as silly punchlines.
they hit way too close to home. They elicit an entirely different emotion. An emotion that's 180 degrees out of phase with the emotion that audiences in 1997 experienced. And that emotion, that emotion is rage. For Black Pill, I'm Devin Stack. In one of my last videos, I mentioned that Nine Inch Nails had been a favorite band of mine when I was younger, and how I came to the conclusion that the purpose of this music was to excite me and to wear down my tolerance to degeneracy and even to promote the nihilism that's pretty much a plague on Generation X in the same way that idealism is to the boomers and that the purpose of this music was to eventually push me as far away from God as possible and I didn't spend too much time going into detail about the music itself because I assumed what I was saying was self-evident. And I was genuinely surprised by how many messages I got from people saying stuff like, well, Nine Inch Nails, it's, it's good. There's a dark beauty to it. I think you're wrong. I like listening to it. And it really illustrated to me that the hold that this kind of music has on people, people that like my content and, and can see the degeneracy in films and other media, at the same time, that the, they'll make excuses for music because they like it, because they want to listen to it. As if the films I dissect aren't loved by audiences everywhere, by millions of people. And it's funny because it's, it's almost as if they don't understand that Liking it is, is part of the problem. If the music was terrible and nobody wanted to listen to it, it would be a non-issue. I mean, understand that you really don't sound much different than a heroin addict that when told to quit says, but I like it. I like the way it makes me feel. And you got to understand, I like it too. I bought several Nine Inch Nails albums over the years, and even now, when I hear a song, it, it elicits a kind of forced nostalgia, but it's taken me time and reflection to understand that this nostalgia is pathetic. Years ago, I worked as a technical director for a morning news show, and, and during the broadcast, we had to wear headsets, so I could tell people when to roll different tapes or to turn microphones on and off or adjust cameras and what have you. When things were slow, we would chat on, on the headsets. And in a lot of ways, it was kind of like being stuck on an elevator talking to people that you wouldn't talk to otherwise. One of those people was the sound engineer. He was this self-proclaimed born-again Christian, a, a born-again Christian that I, I witnessed doing what many Christians do, and that was inadvertently recruiting for the other side by setting a bad example. Uh, I say this because of the way that he acted. It was very obnoxious how, how pious he was, and it was very off-putting. But the one thing that really stuck out, and I've seen this millions of times in people just like him, he couldn't stop talking about how bad he used to be. 
he did this weird kind of bragging where he would tell us how good he was now, but at the same time, still brag about how bad he used to be. For instance, if the crew started talking about how we were going to go get drinks after the show, uh, he would inject himself into the conversation, even though there's no way he was going to be invited anyway. He would need to tell us that he couldn't come and then talk about how, you know, even though he doesn't drink now, oh boy, he used to drink. He used to drink so much. Wow, it was a, it was a miracle he didn't die. Man, if you, if you could have seen him back then, you wouldn't believe how much he used to drink, but not anymore. No, no, he learned his lesson. Now he was a good Christian. And we were all sinners. And I couldn't help but get the sense that he was still stuck thinking that being a party animal was cool. And he had to flex and tell everyone how much of a party animal he used to be. And he could be now if he wanted to. To try to establish some position in the social hierarchy or something. It, it bothered me because it seemed as though if he was really a born-again Christian, that these stories wouldn't be something that he would be proud of. There were stories he'd be ashamed of. He wouldn't be so braggadocious and, and, and talking about these tales of the glory days. And what made it worse was, I highly suspected he was exaggerating most of the stories. Now, as a side note, I, I just want to let some people out there that might not know this, it's Christians like this that really push people away from God. These people don't just look ridiculous, like hypocrites. The sin of pride painted all over their face so everyone can see it but them because they avoid looking into mirrors like vampires. But they make Christianity look like some kind of disingenuous, pompous form of virtue signaling and nothing more. Because I think for him, that's probably what it was. And it's his face that I think of when I catch myself being nostalgic about these times. When I hear this music and I start thinking about how cool I thought I was drinking myself half to death and, and doing other things that would have ruined or, or even ended my life and that did set my life back significantly. But that's the power and the magic of music. It does cause these forced feelings of nostalgia. It's against your will almost. But that's not all it's doing. It's, it's activating parts of the brain that were developing the first time you heard it. And it can put you in that same mindset. That's the power that this music wouldn't have if you didn't like it. So saying that you like it, or even that you like the way it makes you feel, is literally the same as a heroin addict using that same reasoning and even wording as an excuse to not quit. It's nonsense. I liked the music, too. I still, on a level, like it. I like the way it sounds. 
I would probably also like heroin. If all I did was act on the animal part of my brain based on what I liked, I would probably just shoot heroin all day while eating cheesecake, listening to Nine Inch Nails as I played video games and got blowjobs from hookers. Liking things is an absurd standard to base your behavior on. So let's take a closer look at what some of these people like so much. You know, scientists can examine the chemicals inside heroin and observe the damage that it does to your brain and your body. Let's take a look at the contents of Nine Inch Nails. So here are some of the lyrics from the first album, Pretty Hate Machine. Hey God, why are you doing this to me? Am I not living up to what I'm supposed to be? Why am I seething with animosity? Hey God, I think you owe me a great big apology. Terrible lie. Obviously the implication that God has lied to him. The next verse. Hey God, there's nothing left for me to hide. I lost my ignorance, security, and pride. I'm all alone in a world you must despise. Hey God, I believed your promises. Your promises were lies. It's, it's not even symbolism. He's spelling it out. We'll go through more albums and lyrics, but right there, right off the bat, we see that this theme is what is repeated over and over and over in Trent Reznor's music. Over and over and over into the minds of people, mostly in Generation X. Choreographed to catchy sounds that are anything but uplifting. God is a lie. God is a lie. That's the message from Trent Reznor. The world is shit. God is a lie. Do whatever feels good. Do whatever you like. Here's another song. Heaven's just a rumor she dispels as she walks me through the nicest parts of hell. I still dream of lips I never should have kissed. Well, she knows exactly what I can't resist. Once again, God is a lie. The world is shit. So let's just fuck like animals and enjoy animal pleasures because everything else is meaningless. This is literally satanic. You understand that, right? It's not tangentially satanic. This is what is taught at the satanic church. Here's another song. I can't shake this feeling from my head. There's a devil sleeping in my bed. He's watching you from across the way. I cannot make this feeling go away. And then the chorus, I know it's not the right thing. I know it's not the good thing. Kinda I want to. The message is clear. The devil is telling him to just do what feels good. And even though he knows it's wrong, he's going to do it anyway because it's what he wants to do. It's what he likes. Do what thou wilt. The more we look at these lyrics, the more it becomes obvious why the, the real diehard fans of this music 
might not want to give it up. They know it's wrong, but they want to. And Trent Reznor has been telling them over and over and over and over again in their head. That's all the justification you need. So now let's let's take a look at the second album, Broken. That's the one I was talking specifically about in the video that seemed to bother so many Nine Inch Nails fans. This is the first day of my last days. I built it up, now I take it apart, climbed up real high, now fall down real far. No need for me to stay, the last thing left, I just threw it away. I put my faith in God and my trust in you. Now there's nothing more fucked up I could do. Once again, this, this isn't hidden symbolism. This isn't hard to decipher. The people listening are just so desensitized by the repeated degeneracy that they just make excuses for these lyrics because they like the music. They like the way it makes them feel. The same way a heroin addict makes excuses for why their life is a mess and justifies it all because they like the way it makes them feel. Here's another one. There is no God up in the sky tonight. No sign of heaven anywhere in sight. All that was true is left behind. Once I could see, now I am blind. Don't want your dreams you try to sell. This disease I give to myself. Once again, he's, he's telling you everything. In this song, he's, he's even telling you that you're the one doing it to yourself. It's amazing to me that I even have to explain a message this explicit. But at the same time, I understand. I understand because I like the way this music sounds. I do. But that's not a good enough reason to put poison into my brain. Because just like a drug, it might make me feel good in the moment. But what kind of damage are these messages doing to you in the long term? Even if you're an atheist, these, these are not uplifting songs. They're specifically designed to promote nihilism and despair. This isn't rocket scientists. This isn't symbolism. This is literal. If you listen to a tape on repeat that just told you over and over again, you're shit, you're shit, the world is shit. If there's no God, you're just, we're all just monkeys. And you listen to that tape on repeat, or I'm sorry, MP3 on repeat. It is, are, how is that going to affect the way you view the world? How is that going to affect your actions? In the downward spiral... The album opens up with Trent Reznor literally agreeing with everything I just said. Okay, here it goes. I am the voice inside your head, and I control you. I am the lover in your bed, and I control you. I am the sex that you provide, and I control you. I am the hate you try to hide, and I control you. I take you where you want to go. I give you all you need to know. I drag you down. I use you up. Mr. Self-Destruct. The next verse. 
I speak religion's message clear, and I control you. I am denial, guilt, and fear, and I control you. I am the prayers of the naive, and I control you. I am the lie that you believe, and I control you. Again, explicitly telling you that that God is a lie, God is a lie. I'm bringing you down, and I'm controlling you. It's song after song of Trent Reznor spelling out exactly what he's doing. The The next song on the album is literally called Heresy. He sewed his eyes shut because he is afraid to see. He tries to tell me what I put inside of me. He's got the answers to ease my curiosity. He dreamed a God up and called it Christianity. Followed by the chorus, God is dead and no one cares. If there is a hell, I'll see you there. Can you get any more explicit than that? If you want to know how we got to this place in our history and in our culture, it's because people, myself included, by the way, accepted this as part of the culture, as as a norm, because we liked it. And as I said before, liking something is a terrible standard for determining what your behavior should be. If liking something is the standard that you're using to determine what's acceptable, then how are you going to explain to someone who who likes trans kids, as an example, that, that it's wrong? They like it. It makes them feel good. They're being consistent with your standards. It makes them feel good. Life is shit, there is no God, just do whatever feels good. Or to quote Nine Inch Nails, Kinda I want to, maybe just for tonight, we can pretend it's alright. What's the price I pay? I don't care what they say, I want to. Black Pilled. I'm Devin Stack. If you'd like a common refrain I hear from people who are black pilled or just that are beginning to see what the world is really like is, but what can I do? They feel like as a solitary voice that the risks and, and there are tons of risks when, when it comes to speaking your mind in today's world. Very real risks that are increasing daily. They feel like these risks outweigh the benefits. They feel as if by speaking up, all they're going to do is invite personal attacks or or in some cases even personal ruin. And for these people, it seems easier to just go with the flow and and wait for either a, a savior to come and save them or a cataclysmic event to make it all come crashing down. And then when that happens... They can finally feel safe in in speaking out, even though at that point, it really won't do any good. Now, first, I want to say I understand these people, and I'm not here to berate them or, or tell them that their fears are unwarranted. They're not. But what I will say is they're underestimating the power of what one voice 
can have. I mean, for example, I'm just one voice, but that, but that's not even really the point. The point is that you're not the only one that just wants to go with the flow. You might not know it, but you're likely acquainted, maybe even closely or maybe even surrounded by people who feel the exact same way, but they're, they're feeling the same exact pressure as you do to publicly conform to the norm. And if you spoke out, that's all it would take for them to realize that they weren't as outnumbered as they thought they were, and it would give them the courage to speak out as well. And this isn't just me trying to give you a pep talk. This is established science. In the 1950s, Solomon Ash conducted conformity experiments at Swarthmore College in Pennsylvania. In the experiments, he would present a room full of test subjects with a card that had one line on the left and then three lines on the right. The line on the left would match the length of one of the lines on the right, on each card. As you can see here, I have a number of cards, and on each card there are several lines. Your task is a very simple one. You're to look at the line on the left and determine which of the three lines on the right is equal to it in length. He would tell his test subjects that the experiment was to determine how well people could judge the lengths of the lines. What he didn't tell them was that only one of the people in the room were actually test subjects. The others were all in on the experiment. They were actors. The experiment had nothing to do with the perception of the lines, at least not in the way that the real test subject thought. Ash's real experiment was to see if he could get the, the real test subject to choose the wrong line by having all the fake test subjects, the actors, incorrectly choose first. He wanted to see if people would go against the evidence that was literally right in front of them in order to agree with the rest of the group. And the results were actually pretty scary. Two. 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 Uh, two. The subject denies the evidence of his own eyes and yields to group influence. Ash found subjects went along with the group on 37% of the critical trials. When the experiment was concluded, Ash interviewed the participants and found that they incorrectly chose for different reasons. Some he categorized as experiencing a distortion of perception or a distortion of judgment. This meant their ability to even perceive the length of the lines was affected simply because the input they were receiving from the people around them. The social input was overriding their, their eyes. Now think of it as a type of hypnosis or, or suggestion. They actually perceived the incorrect answer as the correct answer because the social pressure was more powerful than their ability to perceive reality. Or they doubted their, their perception, even though they knew it was wrong, they figured they had to be perceiving things incorrectly. So they outsourced the decision-making to the people around them. Think of how many people that applies to today. The media bombards the public with fictional social norms that in no way reflect reality until the majority of the public loses the ability to perceive reality. A good example is how Americans grossly overestimate the number of gay people in America. Gallup did a study in 2011 that, that showed exactly this. Americans polled estimated on average that 23% of the American population was gay when the real number was 3.8%. That's a, that's a huge 
difference and can easily be explained by this distortion of perception and judgment. There are four of them and one of me. One. This subject's yielding is based on a distortion of his judgment. He genuinely believes that the group is correct. Another category that conformed to the group was a category that chose, knowingly chose incorrectly. They knew their answer was wrong, but they still picked the wrong answer. This he called distortion of action. Two. Two. I know they're wrong, but why should I make waves? Two. In this case, the subject knows he is right, but goes along to avoid the discomfort of disagreeing with the group. Here, the distortion is at the level of his response. Two. 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 They were giving the wrong answers because they just wanted to get along with the group. So as frightening as all of this is, why do I bring this up? Doesn't this just reinforce the idea that some people are just going to go along with the group anyway and and speaking up doesn't matter? No. Because Ash performed a variation of the same experiment. In this variation, the fake participants would still choose an incorrect answer, but one of the fake participants would choose correctly. One. One. Two. One. Two. With a partner, yielding drops to only 5% of the critical trials, compared to 37% without a partner. This tiny change made a huge difference in the results. Just by adding one other person who gave the correct answer, the number of people who would conform to the group went all the way down to 5%. Not only that, but in this variation, the real test subject experienced positive feelings towards the fake participant that was giving the the correct answers. That is the power that one voice has. By speaking truth in a room full of liars, you can drop the conformity rate all the way down to 5%. While at the same time, you're creating a bond with these people you're setting an example for. And it's important to keep speaking the truth because Ash found that these voices were so vital to breaking the conformity that if he removed that participant that was giving the correct answers halfway through the experiment, the test subjects would go right back to conforming at a similar rate. Now think of how that plays into why they want to censor dissident voices. They know They have this data. They know that if they remove our voices, the public at large will go right back to conforming to the group. Two. Uh, Two. That's why it's so important for all of us to speak out, whether it's at home, at work, with your friends. You can be that voice that gives the others the courage to stop conforming. Imagine the ripple effect it would have if everyone here watching this, everyone did exactly that. They might try, but they can't censor all of us. You can be that crack in the dam that makes it burst. So to answer your question, yes, there is something you can do. Now you know that one person can 
make a difference. In fact, it's vital that one person makes a difference. And it's just as vital that that person, that person is you. For Black Pilled, I'm Devin Stack. If you like my videos, make sure you like and subscribe. Make sure you share. If you'd like to support me, you can